Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Jonathan Northcroft of the Sunday Times, and Seb Stafford-Bloor of Tifo Football. Chelsea's women got the job done by winning a record fourth WSL title. Manchester City have only themselves to blame for not clinching their third Premier League title in four seasons at the weekend. Chelsea, of course, made them wait. This rivalry is growing. It's a tale of two clubs and four teams with one common goal, domination. So Seb, is this the shape of things to come? Might be. Well, <clears throat> hopefully we've seen the back of the Super League. So, yeah, say that with my fingers crossed. But it seems that way, Mike, because it seems to describe well-run football departments, particularly in the instance of the women's game. There is a... The success of those two sides is a manifestation of proper footballing ambition and also two clubs who seem to understand how to succeed in those forums. And that's usually a formula for long-term success. So I, I'd say so. I mean, the men's game is a slightly different kettle of fish just because it's sustained by you know, less than organic forces sometimes. And it's a little bit more volatile. So you can never be quite as certain as kind of in kind of heralding a new age. But it seems to be heading in that direction too. Maybe I'd add Manchester United to that conversation just on the basis of uh, of their revival and their financial power. But yeah, pretty much. Mm. Yeah, I noted Emma Hayes, Johnny, who's a terrific coach she sees Chelsea's success as a reward for, for a one club approach would you agree with that and also you know she's built this over and she's built it strategically over seven or eight years so that it's a reward also for patience which is something you don't usually associate with Chelsea yeah, I mean, I guess there's been continuity on the women's side that hasn't always been there on, on the men's side. And it's interesting that, I mean, it's, it's funny, I remember the debates, you know, maybe five, ten years ago about how women's teams should fit into the kind of bigger picture. Should they be associated with, with the men's teams closely or should they be very separate? And I think Manchester City and Chelsea are the two that have most integrated their teams and probably put the most investment as well, but but most integrated their teams fully into the club. And actually, when you think back to Arsenal and their old dominance of women's football, they were the one team that had the women's side 
semi you know on campus semi part of the 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 setup so i suppose it's always what's what's worked best but you know in in chelsea and in manchester city Seb mentioned, you know, referenced the sort of forces at play, whatever. I think what you've got to remember is that these are both clubs that are being run for, I'm, I'm, I won't quite say PR purposes because that's a slightly glib phrase, but they're certainly being run for reputational purposes. And both those clubs many years ago have seen the value of having strong women's teams as part of building a club's reputation and have put money properly into them. And Emma Hayes, just just like you know, Manchester City have taken their money and, and been able to do something good with it. Not saying she's had huge investment, but but compared to other other women's teams, they've had the the benefit of being able to sign good players and good facilities, and she's made the most of it. You know, n- none of that investment means that that she's anything other than an outstanding coach and anything other than outstanding players. And I guess they are they've become the model moving forward, even more so than Man City, who three or four years ago were the reference point for women's football, but you've probably got to look at Chelsea now. Yeah, well, if you look at City, I suppose they've got some big-name US players and in England internationals. They finished two points behind Chelsea in the WSL. Both teams lost only once in the league, and that probably says it all, doesn't it? Interesting looking at Emma Hayes as a coach. Seb, are you in Amara? Of course. I mean, I, I'm still in the process of learning about Emma Hayes. I'm not going to pretend that I've I've paid attention to her career all the way through, but everything I read is as a kind of a new layer of intrigue. Um, the Athletics' Katie White wrote an excellent piece last week about the way she interacts with her players on a human level and the way that she challenges players and supports them and has a kind of loco and parentis attitude towards building a football team. And we were actually talking before we came on uh, at the start of recording, Mike, about how interesting that is and how lacking in these kind of slightly kind of trailblazing characters the men's game is at the moment. And Emma Hayes certainly seems to be one of them. And that isn't to say, of course, that there isn't a huge focus on the, the footballing element. One thing I've noticed, I think one thing we've all noticed is that as Chelsea's success has been reported over the last few weeks, you get the kind of the standing army of tedious social media types who, who <laughs> shout it down. I just say yeah. to, to anyone... You know, if, if 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 they've got a little bit of time, watch the watch the second leg of that Chelsea Bayern Munich game in the Champions League semi final. Look at the quality of the football that Emma Hayes has those Chelsea players playing. It's phenomenal. It's also if you're an occasional visitor to women's football, it's like sort of you know seeing an old friend. You notice the difference in their personalities more easily. And I think if you drop in, you see the kind of the the evolution and the development in the game and the speed of the game and the technical quality of the players going through the roof. And I. I mean, that has to be credit to the, to a coach, of course. Yeah, I, I must admit, I'm so over this below-the-line comment about, oh, we're not interested. Well, fine, I don't care <laughs> yeah, about that's that. That's it, isn't it? I, I think also, you know what, Johnny was talking about, the kind of the integration of the teams at some of these clubs. And um, there was a, I was sort of on Instagram a couple of, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, Jill Scott has been open, has opened a new cafe with her partner. And Kevin De Bruyne showed up. On like sort of the opening, <laughs> the second day to kind of to, to try whatever whatever um, whatever roast she's selling, and I just thought that yes, it's a tiny little detail, but I felt like it was indicative of of the kind of the internal culture of that club because I dare say there are there are teams in the country where you'd have male players who couldn't name a member of the women's team. I would have thought it describes something healthy. I'd say. Mm. That, that's an interesting point about uh, coaching. You know that, that you made earlier about. Almost like the lack of 
of new types of character emerging in the in men's coaching. Would you agree with that, Johnny? Perhaps in in if we're talking about British coaching, you know, and, and Emma Hayes, I guess, is a case for saying she's the outstanding British manager of either gender at the moment. Certainly, English manager. But yeah, I guess we are in a phase of of men's football where the coaching scene's a bit like the playing scene. You know, we've got Ronaldo and Messi on the on the pitch who still haven't quite been dethroned. You know, maybe they're slightly ebbing now, but but they're still there. And we're still looking at, uh, I guess, at Pep Guardiola and Jurgen Klopp to a certain extent. Thomas Tuchel might be, might be the man to, or one of the men to, to sort of dethrone those. But but yeah, there probably hasn't been a big new coaching character. Nagelsmann, slight my my Julie's slightly out. Although I suspect he's going to turn out to to be very successful. But in British, I think in in English coaching in, and Scottish, to be honest, we we are still looking for that that next outstanding coach to, to, to hang the hats on. And I guess we could we could debate for a long time why that is. But uh, well, one thing that intrigues me about, about Emma Hayes is that I note that she's had the kind of almost the Josie Mourinho coaching journey where she hasn't really been a player, but she's become a, she's been a coach from a very early age and applied herself. And if there's a dearth of, of really outstanding British men's coaches coming through at the moment. It's probably because we're still getting guys coming from the ex-playing ranks who haven't had time to grow. I'm I'm waiting for the first, you know, men's British Mourinho, I suppose, who just comes from outside of the, the the playing scene more or less, and 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 is a sensation. Even Graham Potter had a quite a long playing career, so I don't think anyone's quite done that route yet. And maybe that's one reason why we haven't seen, you know. A, a British men's coach with real brave new ideas and a new way of doing things. Yeah, I, I suspect when that person emerges, it will probably be from the academy system. You know, we, we're yeah. seeing one or two academy coaches beginning to make their mark in first team management and yeah. also being promoted elsewhere. I guess Brendan Rodgers is, is the example where Brendan did have a, a, a playing career, but but it was cut short by injury and he really did come from the academy scene and, and, and learnt, learnt his way there. But he's yeah. sort of out, sort of I was still out on his own a little bit, in, in in and I think you're right, Mike. I think I think the next ones will be young coaches who've been involved in E Triple P and are then graduating to management. Mm. Let's look at Pep Guardiola, I suppose, as he's the um, exemplar at the moment. Can we look? Obviously, they were made to wait for the title, but it's been said almost the transitional season for them, hasn't it? In terms of almost personnel, tactical development. We're waiting for their third Premier League title in four years. Let's look at the team itself and, and the season. How does this team, do you think, compare and contrast to, to Pep's you know, great teams at Barca and also you know, the team, obviously, he developed at Bayern? I wouldn't put it on a level with the team he built at Barcelona yet just because the personnel is doesn't match up player for player. What I'll say is that there have been little reinventions. There have been... Guardiola has succeeded this season, I think, by kind of challenging his own orthodoxy in terms of the type of player he's used. So the big success and uh, I think probably a contender for football year is Ruben Diaz. And that speaks to the ability to pay for that kind of money for a centre-half. But I've been really intrigued this season by the use of the false nine, which is a callback, obviously, to Barcelona. His use of Phil Foden has been really interesting. The kind of, I suppose... 
Cancelo is a, is a, is a strange shout for a, for a prominent figure this season, but I've been hugely impressed by him because for, for a long time, and it didn't really attract attention because at Man City, most of the issues were in the inside of the defence, in the internal positions, like both centre-half roles. We kind of overlooked the issues that they had at fullback, the problems that Mendy had, partly because of his own fragility, physical issues, partly because he, I don't know what he suffered with, but he had that kind of mistake gene in him. And on the other side, Carl Walker has a, has always, you know, had a little bit of kind of volatility to his play. City have been reinvented as a kind of slightly more stable side, but also one with this wonderful flourish to the middle bits. And it's not quite as robotic. And I don't mean robotic in a kind of a negative way, but there have been times in during during Guardiola's time at City where it's like watching kind of like a an early 16-bit computer game in the kind of the ping-ponging aspect. And you, you know where the players are going to be. And, you know, the some of the positional um, players are a little bit too rigid. And I feel it's all felt a little bit more fluid. I, I don't, I'm not going to pretend to know where that comes from, but I've enjoyed watching them. I've also enjoyed the slight edge to their side, which is not a Guardiola quality. There's a, 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 the ever so slight nastiness to their football. And I, I think you saw that in the Champions League. There's an aggression and a kind of, yeah, just a, just an ugliness in a good way to them. And, and that's, uh, it's, it speaks to some kind of reinvention at least. Mm. Yeah, Seb mentions... Diaz there, Johnny. This is We're recording this on the final day of voting for the FWA's Footballer of the Year. I've gone for, for Kevin De Bruyne. Which way have you jumped? <laughs> well, uh, you mentioned Diaz. I, I cast my vote for Edison on the day um, that uh, <laughs> Chelsea played, uh, Man City played that second leg against Paris Saint-Germain. And I was watching Ruben Diaz laughing at myself, going, oh my word, I'm voting against this guy. Um <laughs> I, I think they're all outstanding. I, I think Diaz, Diaz has been has been sensationally good. I love him as a, a as a character, as a defender, as a footballer as well. He's a good footballer. I voted for De Bruyne last year because he's the best player in the league. He's given us so much joy, and even a sort of quiet Kevin De Bruyne game just involves two or three majestic elements to it. I went for Edison. Look, maybe cards on the table. You know, I've been writing a book with Peter Schmeichel. Maybe the goalkeepers' union have got to me. <laughs> um, but I just, I, I think, I think you could vote for near five or six people from the city team. And my rationale for Edison is is just that I think, apart from perhaps De Bruyne, he's the most fundamental player in that team. Apart from De Bruyne, he's the one player that any team in the world would be improved by. I think you know, in an era of, of sweeper keepers, and that's an old-fashioned phrase now, but he, he's, he's out on his own. He defines what that position is. If you remember what City were before they signed him, the, you know, they were fourth in the league, basically. They, were, they, 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 they couldn't realise Guardiola's vision because they didn't have that, that, that crucial 11th player to play the 11-man game. And... and you know, somebody that could could push the defensive line up and, and, and all that all that all that happens. And that was before they discovered his passing ability. I mean that's you know, he, he came in to do that job. He came in to do the Manuel Neuer job, but he's Manuel Neuer plus I don't know Virgil van Dyke with the way that he, he can put a 70 yard ball on someone's feet. I just think he's absolutely outstanding and he, he's he's been good year after year. I think he's got twenty three clean sheets that that pass, that the most beautiful route one goal you'll ever see, I suppose, uh, last last week just summed up Edison. So I've got I've gone for him. Couldn't argue with Diaz, couldn't argue with De Bruyne, but I do think a Man City player deserves to win it because it's 
it's a it's an embarrassment that that in this era only one city player has won, which was Sterling a couple of years ago. It's, a, it's an embarrassment we let Aguero pass through our football and David Silva pass through our football without celebrating them, for example, Yaya Toure. So I certainly think a city player should win it. Mm. Mentioning Aguero there, Seb, and we've got to think about the Panenka on Saturday. Was that symbolic of a, a disappointing final season for him? And also, do we really read anything into Chelsea's win at the Etihad on Saturday? Especially with obviously the Champions League in mind. Um, in order, Mike, I, I don't, I don't have a problem with botched Penenkas. I know that I laugh along with everybody else, and you know I find them funny. I hated it. I really hated it. I think it's just professionally dis. Well, it's disrespectful, <laughs> but it's no. just. I hate it. We're recording this on Skype, and I I can actually see you going red as you describe this. You really mean this, Mike. I I do. It just did my head in. Mike, as 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 a Millwall player, ever tried a Penenka? He wouldn't leave the stadium alive. I know that if he missed. Not in Neil Harris's repertoire. That that the Penenka penalty. I. You know what? The reason I don't dislike it is because I don't. I know everybody sees it as as a, a kind of symptom of arrogance and of a, a penalty taker playing to the crowd. But I think in a lot of cases, it's a valid tactic. I think with some players, maybe you could level up that accusation in the past. But I certainly felt like, for instance, if you're taking a penalty and you're nervous as a player, it's an important penalty and you're aware, you've done your research, you know the goalkeeper's moving, he's got a favoured side, he you know favours his right hand, whatever, then it seems like quite a low-risk option. I remember seeing... Um, Adamola Lutman's penalty at the London Stadium earlier in the season and just thinking that was a very important moment in Fulham's season Adamola Lutman hasn't taken a lot of penalties in the Premier League I don't think he'd taken any at that point and so you think right I'm nervous I want a a, a penalty taking solution which is as low risk as possible I'm going to go for this he messes it up he looks a bit silly and he costs his team's points I understand all of that but I don't have a problem with the method per se I, I don't I don't I don't see it as a kind of as you know intentional flamboyance I mean, you're still red, Mike, so you're going to correct me now. <laughs> <laughs> I just say, if you're nervous, larap it, yeah, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Kevin Pressman it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I, I suppose, you know, being serious, I, you know, I will be saddened if that almost is the enduring images image of, of Aguero's last season. You know, you mentioned in, in glowing terms... We do need to recognise him as, as one of the great players of the Premier League era, don't we? Yeah, fabulous player, Mike. Absolutely fabulous player. Just the perfect modern forward, uh, low centre of gravity, very quick release on his shot, dangerous in all kinds of different positions, can score pretty much any type of goal and has done it season after season after season. He's been a fabulous player. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think also he's one of those players that probably doesn't have the place in the game that he deserves because he hasn't been a very three-dimensional personality during his time in, in England. He's been quite private, doesn't speak a lot of English or didn't for, for most most of the time he spent here, which is absolutely fine, but it means that you don't get the profile. And so he doesn't become... He's a he's a quiet sort of superstar, isn't he? But um, you know, what a privilege it's been to watch him for, for, for the majority. Mm-hmm. When you look at this side, Johnny, how do you think it will develop over the next season or two do you think they perhaps will need a a new defensive midfield player someone like a Declan Rice you know a more traditional central striker how do you think it will all pan out 
Yeah, it's an interesting one. And I, I was nodding earlier when Seb was talking about the, you know, in personnel terms, this one doesn't actually match up to the classic guard, the best Guardiola teams. It probably doesn't even match up to City three or four years ago when they were racking up 100 points. I think he's at his peak. Pep Guardiola's at his peak. But this team's got a long way to, certainly a way to go, maybe not a long way. But yes, I think when I watch them, central midfield still looks like it could upgrade. Uh, Rodri is okay, but just okay. And Fernandinho is getting old. So they could they could definitely get that 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 more special player in there. And you know, everybody everybody wants Declan Rice for that that very reason. I mean Fabinho's, you know, for me still he's he's a reference point at the moment in that position and, and he he would be, you know, a massive upgrade, someone of that standard for City. Yeah, central striker, I mean, you know, of course they can do without one, but it'd be even more awesome if they had one. There have been games, I mean, probably the first half against Chelsea at the weekend, they could have had, you know, a killer would, in the box would have given them two or three goals there. And that second half comeback might not have happened. I do wonder as well, in the wide areas, I just wonder what's happening with Raheem Sterling, to be in all honesty. I mean, Mahrez has, has, has been terrific this year and he's probably usurped. Sterling in some ways, but he's about 30 and Raheem looks a bit of a crossroads, which way he's going to go. So that, that, that might long-term be, be something. And I guess the other one, you know, I agree that Cancelo has been excellent, but I think he's only half a really top fullback. And Guardiola keeps talking about, you know, that factor that, that defensively he's not at the top, top level with the ball at his feet coming into midfield. He's, he's, he's wonderful. So that's left backs being the city kind of Achilles heel for ten years now or, or whatever. So that, that 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 that's again a long term project for them. But you know, Guardiola will also keep refining his game and just find coaching ways to make them better. And you know, they'll end up this season with eighty odd points. Next season they'll probably have ninety odd points. Mm, well, isn't that isn't that you know the point about? coaches making players better one of the things that defines Chelsea and City at the moment is that they've got a coach haven't they and a staff Seb that can pr- improve the players they've already got yeah which when you tally it with their spending power is a pretty frightening prospect I know that um, there's a little bit of a mini recession in the transfer market at the moment apparently I've heard about it we'll get to see long-term evidence of that but when you match those two things up and this is you know not particularly uplifting thing to say when you when you match those th- two things up you make teams of that profile almost un- untouchable because if you if you say to a uh if a, a, a Tuchel or a Guardiola right where you, you can handpick your your ideal candidate for each position and yet you also have the ability to embed those players properly into a side it's the difference between constructing a Manchester City or a Chelsea who reach 100 points in the Premier League and win a Champions League with a Paris Saint-Germain, who, by the way, I, I watched, I watched late last night, and it was just they they ended up dropping points, and they were, it'll probably cost them the title. And it's just very interesting to see what happens at a super club when the chemistry isn't quite right. And it, it is it also emphasises the importance of getting it right and of having that coach who can 
manage egos, manage abilities, and create a team out of all these decadent parts. The difference is huge. It's it's never, and I, I feel sometimes like we 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 miss that point a little bit just because the emphasis is so much on money and wage spend and general resources that we miss the coaching aspect of it because coaching coaching's almost become a lost science. We started the pod by talking about Emma Hayes, but you know, the importance of actually what happens on a training ground, not the ideologies, not the philosophy, not the high priest stuff that we are all fascinated with, but the actual get the cones out, get the balls out, make players better. That stuff is lost. And yet the last half of this season has been testament to just how valuable that is. Mm. Yeah, when we look at coaches and managers, one of the consistent factors of not just this season, probably last as well, is is the doubt that is still cast towards Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and hands up you know I've been amplifying that doubt on a fairly regular basis what strikes me about that Manchester United team Johnny is just the resilience they came you know back again against Villa I think it's nine times this season what about is it pretty much now time to actually say well look he's got his he's, he's done his job in terms of qualifying for the Champions League He's got a European final on the horizon. Should we give him a break? Well, you're sort of preaching to to the converted because I've been, you know, I felt in a very much in a minority at times in in being a a fan of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Of course, I'd have said I'd have said this eighteen months ago. In all honesty, look, I think the difficulty is that we have been talking about Guardiola and Tuchel, and this is who we're trying to compare people to. And these guys are almost the full package. I'm not. I'm not going to pretend that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is the full package, because there are there are these levels of coaching that I'm not sure any you know very few people can do. And he's he's probably he's probably not that he's probably not that guy. But what there, there's also a part of being a football manager, as the job description suggests, that involves management, and that is where Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is absolutely outstanding and has been from the moment he arrived at Manchester United, amid the carnage, the wreckage that Jose Mourinho left behind him, he's managed the environment, first of all, fantastically well. That's where being an ex-player helps, because he actually understands, uh, and that's where maybe the Zidane comparison at Real Madrid comes in. He understands how to navigate the difficulties, um, manage upwards, manage in the direction of the fans, manage the environment. That's not easy at these big, big clubs. That very few guys can do that. He's done that superbly, and he's and he and he's 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 managed the squad motivationally absolutely. You know, this is the most unified Manchester United squad since since Fergie as a group of people. Yeah, it's, it's still got a couple of stars in it, but the stars at work for the team now. You know, how how quiet has Paul Pogba's season been in terms of the the noise? And that's testament to to, to Pogba himself, but also to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. So there's all these layers that he's really good at the game plan can be quite simple at times but it's effective it's not like he's chosen a a bad game plan there's levels he could add to it there's levels United should be looking to add to it they need to be a team that can dominate in possession more and they need to be a team that can go into those big games and compete on equal terms and not not sit in the deep block and try and counter but you know two and a half years into it I think he's got them in a a really good place compared to where he took over and I think he'll he will continue to develop United there will be a point where he has to do every somebody if not him has to do everything that a, a Guardiola and a Klopp can do because that's where Man United be 
But I, I, I certainly think he's done enough so far to, to say that even if he walked away now, he has improved Manchester United an awful lot. And we should respect how difficult a lot of that job has been. Yeah, and you know the job never gets easier, does it? He's lost Harry Maguire with a, an ankle injury, which probably, Seb, seems to highlight the validity of his criticism of the fixture con- congestion that United are having to put up with. You know, they're, they're playing... You know, Leicester on Tuesday, Liverpool on Thursday, then Fulham Wolves, then the Villarreal final in very, very quick succession. Has he got a point? Yeah, he does. I'm, I'm not I'm not a huge fan of a Manchester United manager making it because, <laughs> well, in, in the same way that sort of big club managers tend not to speak out when smaller clubs with smaller squads with fewer resources are suffering the same thing week in, week out. I mean, it's just a... You've got the resources to rotate your squad. It's a huge luxury. It's one of the reasons why I kind of stand against the idea of five substitutions in the Premier League. Clearly favours the big sides. He's got a point, but you've got to be consistent with it. If you're not going to speak out at the beginning of the season during what is a very strange season, let's face it, I'm never going to, I'm never going to nod along with the argument when it's when it comes from a certain part of the game, especially over the last couple of weeks. <laughs> well 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 speaking speaking of those last couple of weeks, let's end it by looking at the, you know, so called punishments that are being dreamed up. And and one other point actually before we go on, obviously in terms of the top four, it looks likely that United will essentially field a very, very weakened team on Tuesday night against Leicester, which will obviously help them. But going to the, the the punishments, United obviously in in the form of Joel Glazer have been they're the principal agitators in in, in all this. The punishments, and I probably want to put that word in inverted commas, fifteen million euros between the nine who've uh, recanted plus anywhere between about one and a half and six million pounds a season or for one season for their European revenues. Johnny, that's just a tap on the wrist, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, the, the especially the, the 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 six English Super League clubs have come up with this kind of temporary insanity defence. Oh, I don't know, <laughs> don't know what we were thinking. Oh no, but now we've woken up and we've listened to fans and things are fine again, and they've been allowed to get away with that. To be honest, but this is this is football politics. This is the reality of of how things always have been and and probably have to be. I, I, it's. I think. I think. I think they have to. They, they, you know, they have to find a way to bring the clubs together. I'm not sure how. I'm not sure what purpose would really be served by, I don't know, excluding the the Super League clubs from European competition or whatever. Whatever meaningful punishment might be. I think the loss of power is a punishment. It's happening at Premier League level, and it's also happened in the sort of you know, macro European politics where now Bayern and, and Paris Saint-Germain in particular have, have, have jumped into those sort of seats of power and will get to dictate a little bit more. So that, that's a punishment in, in a sense. It leaves Real Madrid and Barcelona awfully isolated and facing enormous problems now. And you know, I mean, let's, let's just remember that the, particularly the American investors in, in English clubs were looking at the Super League as the golden ticket, as the, the thing that was going to boost their valuations and then they were going to sell for 
you know, multi-billions and making enormous profit. And that's been cut off for them. That'll make them really sad. That's a punishment. Okay. I'll just dry my tears and ask the final <laughs> question. Then. Uh, we're in a situation, aren't we, Seb, where only lawyers are going to win, especially if they're talking about two-year bans for Barcelona, Real Madrid and, and Juventus, which I, I felt the self-entitlement of those remaining rebels really revealing you know basically they were only going to do it for the common good well maybe maybe not reforms needed in any case isn't it yeah i think so i mean the attitude i think i I found the sort of the attitude more troubling than the action mike because i to to see florentino perez on uh, our friends tv show there the the guy that whipped eden hazard for smiling after uh after real madrid got eliminated (laughs) from champions league um it's the kind of the it's like when, when someone convinces themselves that they're right about something, that this is a great act of benevolence. And also I read through, obviously, the, the joint statement from Real Madrid, Barcelona and Juventus over the weekend. And I, I got through paragraph one and then just had to kind of reflexively close the window because it's just the most nauseating self-pity I, I think I've ever read. Um, <laughs> but the problem is, and, and this is why you're right, is that these clubs genuinely believe in this course of action for reasons other than the ones that they're disclosing, but they believe in it. And therefore, when that happens, lawyers usually follow. I mean, if anyone hasn't read it, recommends the wrong word, I would say I urge you just to to read through the statement issue of the weekend, just so that you can understand the kind of disparity in, of thinking that exists at the top of the game and the kind of the the, the mental contortions that clubs are, are capable of, of performing to kind of rationalise their actions. It's um, It's a remarkable piece of prose, let's put it that way. <laughs> Yeah, I think we should market it under Betrayal for Dummies. Yeah, it's uh, yeah tough read. <laughs> but, you know, the reality is, isn't it, that the stain of that betrayal might linger, but will the bitterness endure amongst their, their fellow clubs? I doubt it. It's, it's business, it isn't personal. The Premier League, or the 14 other clubs in the Premier League, need the so-called Big Six, or, or at least some of them, I'll leave you to guess which ones. Token punishment, though, will just set a damning precedent. Unless there are real consequences for actions against the common good, we'll be back here sooner rather than later. What do you think? Please let me know. And in the meantime, thanks to Johnny and Seb for their insight. And to you, of course, for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 